0: As we come to your word again we are we come understanding that the truths that you lay before us this morning will only be words on a page unless you give us hearts that are willing and eager for the joy set before us to obey them and to let them be the ruling influence in our lives when our marriages have difficulties and They're not fun anymore, and we struggle and at times want to quit. We praise you that your word is so practical that it deals with issues such as these, and you've given it to us for your great glory, but also for our own joy. And so I pray, Father, that you would enable us to hear, give us ears to hear and a heart that desires to submit to your word because you're worth it. And so, Father, we give you praise for it. Holy Spirit, come now and give us hearts that are willing to obey for Jesus' sake, for we to pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's unfortunate in our day that the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, which seems to be an appropriate theme on the 4th of July, seems to have been twisted into the right to choice, licentiousness, and the pursuit of any kind of perceived personal fulfillment. But that's where we are today. Personal satisfaction at any cost has become one of the highest ideals in Western culture. Society over the past couple of decades has been so effectively psychologized and oprified <laughs> that self-realization, self-fulfillment, self-actualization, getting my needs met, protecting my space... And our fragile sensitivities, we are, perhaps as Americans, some of the most emotionally fragile people who have ever lived on the face of the planet, because we have so embraced psychology as truth when it is, in fact, error. But these things have become the fundamental motive shaping who we are as a people and self-esteem seems to be the cure for every ill, when in fact it's not. As a result, some of life's most sacred institutions are being battered to rubble. And on the top of the list is marriage. And there's a lot more here I could say and had even planned on saying about the culture, but we don't need to get into that. You know what's happening, not only in the culture at large, but in the church. What a low view even believers have about marriage, if you believe the statistics, and I don't, um, then you believe that 50%, uh, perhaps even more than 50% of believers' uh, marriages end in divorce. The reason I say I don't believe that is I don't believe 50% of those who say they're believers are actually saved. I think they're churchgoers who have, revere the Bible But listen, two people who are walking with the Spirit of God can get along. They can love each other. They can work through their problems, as we'll see here in a few minutes. But the kind of attitude that we find in our day toward marriage is the same kind of attitude that existed in Jesus' day and in the Apostle Paul's day. I want to start off this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We won't stay here very long, but... Um, And we we have been kind of warming up to this chapter, and there's something that I want you to note in uh, chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians that will set us up for the rest of what we'll talk about this morning. Uh, This is not a topical message, this will be an expository message, but this text will shoot us over to another text that I think is more important for us this morning, so that when we come back to 1 Corinthians, we'll understand it better Starting with verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 7, just follow along with me, I'll read several verses. The Apostle Paul says, But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them that they remain even as I am, in other words, single. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I'll just insert the word lust there. It's better to marry than to be continually burning with lust. But to the married, I give instruction, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And the text goes on. All right, what I want to point out is this statement that he uses, and it's more times than just those in this text, where he says, I am speaking, not the Lord, but me, or here's where the Lord has spoken, not the Lord, uh, not, not me, but the Lord. And I remember as a young seminary student looking at this and going, what is that? Is he saying... Uh, that what he is saying is his own ideas, his own opinions. Is this less inspired than the red portions of the Bible? It's one of the dangers of having a... Uh, and I don't think there's any big danger of having a red letter edition. I'm preaching from one. Um, but we need to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to think that the red letters are more inspired just because those are the words of Jesus. They're not more inspired. It's nice to be able to see when Jesus is speaking... But the red letters are not more inspired than the black letters. And when the Apostle Paul says, not the Lord, but me, I am now telling you, I just want you to be clear in what he's saying here. What he's saying is this. The Lord has spoken about the issue of divorce. And he has said some really essential things and everything that was necessary to the questions that were being presented him. But you have written me a letter and asked me more questions. And so I'm just trying to make a distinction here. Some of this is what the Lord has already covered. And some of this has not been inspired yet. And so I'm doing that. The Lord is inspiring me by the power of his Holy Spirit to explain answers to your questions. And so when we read in 1 Corinthians 7, not the Lord, but this is me, or not me, this is the Lord, that's the only distinction he's making. In both cases, this is the inspired word of God, all sufficient for everything pertaining to life and godliness. Paul is simply saying, the Lord has already talked about some of this stuff, some of the other things the Lord has left for me to talk about, but what I'm saying to you is just as inspired as what the Lord would say. Now we know that he is responding to questions because look at verse 1 of chapter saying, now concerning the things about which you wrote me. And so from here, the Apostle Paul is going to start answering questions that the uh, Corinthians sent to him in a letter. And we don't know what that letter contained. We know it contained these questions, but we don't know what the questions were. Now, I hope in a couple of weeks, in a few weeks, to, um, to, to kind of reveal to you what I think the questions were. You kind of have to piece them back together. In any case, those aren't essential. The, the essential thing here is the truth that Paul gives us. But what I want you to see is that Paul is answering very specific questions, and some of the answers come directly from the teaching of Jesus Christ. And when those answers come directly from the teachings of Jesus Christ, Paul says so. Paul says, the Lord has already taught on this. And then he says, now let me give you some more information in response to your questions. Now, then the question comes to us, all right, so what did the Lord teach on this? That's a great question, and I'm glad you asked. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Because in Matthew chapter 19, we have one of the key portions of Scripture where Jesus is responding to the issue, uh, a question about divorce. And so I'd like to read verses 3 through 9, and uh, if you want to stand, let's stand together in honor of the Word of God, and just follow along with me. If you have a New American Standard Bible, you can read it out loud with me. Starting with verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said... For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not, not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Thank you. You can be seated. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And this is a really crucial text for us, and we need to get a handle on it. Because it's so important for us to understand this text, uh, this this whole concept of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Now, these next few messages are going to be pretty didactic because um, we not only need exhortation from Scripture, we also need explanation of the Scriptures. And so, this is one of those issues that we really need to understand. Now, just to kind of give you the heart of the elders on this, uh, back in, I think, 2003, I was uh, teaching through the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. And when we came to Jesus' teaching on divorce, I knew it was coming. A couple of months ahead of time, I, I saw what was coming, and I went to the elders, and I said, hey, look, the divorce question's coming up. Where do we stand on divorce? And we all kind of looked at each other and said, gee, we, we really don't know. We don't have consensus about where we stand on divorce. And so we started studying, you know, because there are different ideas about how we should understand divorce, and a lot of them aren't biblical. And so one person had one idea, another person understood the Scriptures in another way, and a third person uh, understood it this way, and one person had no opinion at all. And so for two months, we worked on that before we came to the text in Mark. And when we got there, we still weren't ready. And so I stood in this pulpit, and I said, I'm sorry, but the next section of Scripture is, uh, is a controversial issue that the elders are not ready to teach you yet because we don't have consensus and so just bear with us, we're going to skip this passage, and when we understand what the Word of God is saying on these things, I'm going to stop wherever we are, and we're going to go back and pick this up, and that's what we did back in 2003. Out of that has come a paper that we wrote, just one, one sheet that I think we'll make available next week, that will give you our understanding, our biblical, collective understanding of the text, not our opinion, but what we believe the text is saying. So what I'm giving you this morning and for the next couple of messages is going to be our understanding of the key texts that speak to the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And so this should be significant for all of us. Because we live in a culture that has such a low view of marriage. And frankly, if you're taking notes, that's where I want to start this morning. Number one is the Pharisees' low view of marriage. The Pharisees' low view of marriage. And we see that in verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And you could just underline the word any, because that was the key key word here. Any reason at all. I mean, can we... uh, I mean, can, if we just feel like divorcing her, is that okay? And that's what they were saying. And we need to understand that in Jesus' day, the people's regard for marriage was frankly no better than our own collectively. In fact, in, it may have been worse in that day because the religious leaders had come to believe that a man could divorce his wife for almost any reason at all and still remain in good standing with God. And sometimes we think the same thing. We have a fight with our wife, the morning of worship, and we don't make it right. We don't ask forgiveness. We just come, and we sing the songs, all I have is Christ, maybe participate in the Lord's table, and we're worshiping in an unworthy manner, and the Lord doesn't even hear us. And the Lord wasn't hearing the Pharisees either. He warned them back in the Old Testament many times Do I delight in sacrifices and burnt offerings? To obey is better than sacrifice. In fact, in several places, he says, just stop praying, stop offering the sacrifices. They are a a stench to me because this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so for that reason alone, this speaks to us. If we have a low view of marriage, Uh, we probably have a low view of worship too. Otherwise, our worship would motivate us to fix the things that are wrong in our marriage because we would say God's word is worthy of ruling our lives more than our feelings. But this was taught, this was actually taught that that a marriage could be dissolved, a a writ of divorce could be given for almost any reason. In fact, there were whole schools of rabbinical teaching that taught this. For example, the rabbinical school of Hillel said that a man could divorce his wife if she burned the dinner, or if she let her hair down in public, or if she spoke to a man on the street. And there was another rabbi who was even more liberal than him. His name was Akiba. And he took an even more liberal position and said that a man could legitimately legitimately divorce his wife. Easy for me to say, right? You got to try this sometimes. It's not easy. If uh, he could divorce his wife, if he found another woman that was more appealing than the one he had, just turn her in for a new one. I know some of you have threatened to do that. Some of your wives may have threatened to do that, Um, but that was a school of theology back in the day. And so when the Pharisees came to debate Jesus on the issue of divorce, they came in the context of a culture that held a very low view of marriage and a very high view of individual rights. I have the right to be happy. I have the right to be, this is a new one, I have a right to have boundaries. Oh my goodness, and use the word of God to support that. Which is just a way of saying, I have a right to be selfish, and I can support it with Bible verses. Um, I have a right to be fulfilled. I have a love cup that God designed for me to have, and it's empty, and my spouse is no longer feeling it like she used to, and so I have a right to keep my love cup filled. And I always ask, what verse are you thinking about? Love cup, is that is that in there? Where, where's in my concordance? I mean, the concordance is usually pretty sketchy in the back of your Bible, but... I don't think there's a, a, a Greek word, you know, agape cupas, or something. <laughs> <coughs> um, for love cup. It's just not there. We have so many unbiblical ideas of what our needs are, and they're really just perceived rights and desires. And because we're not happy, and so we want the Bible to condone our desire to bail. And it's not right. In fact, I think the the Pharisees, when they came to approach Jesus about this, I really think they were counting on the hope that he would take a really hard line on this and not really be able to back it up. Because if he did, this was so prevalent in the culture, I think they believed that they could just get him to say what he was really f- feeling about the issue. You know, what do you feel about this? I always hate that question. What do you feel about this controversy? It doesn't matter what I feel about it. I don't trust my feelings. What does the word of God say about it? And that was Jesus' perspective. But they were wanting him to tell them how they felt about this, how he felt about this issue. And they were thinking that if they could get him to take a really hard line on this, he would fall out of favor with the people. And especially the other religious leaders, some of whom were beginning to follow him because they were under this opinion as well, that they could um, divorce their wives for anything. I really think that the men who came to approach Jesus on this were men who would exercise this so-called right and had probably had multiple divorces behind their belt and were just looking for Jesus to step out of sync with that so they would have reason to arrest him or at least to dishonor him in front of the people and move toward discrediting him. I want you to notice the motive behind their coming. They came, Matthew says, to test him. This was not going to be a friendly debate. The Pharisees uh, had made a cold calculation about um, how to discredit Jesus. They were always doing this. They were always having little group think tanks on how they could come up with a question. What question can we come up with that is a bulletproof question that will put him in a straitjacket logically and biblically, that he won't be able to escape and we'll have him. And man, they come up with some really hard questions. And every time, Jesus flicked them away like a flea, like a flea. So much so that even the men who were asking their questions many times said, uh, the author would say, and from that moment on, they refused to ask him any more questions. Jesus was brilliant. He was brilliant. Of course, he was God, so that helped, but... He was, I mean, you just think about it on a human level. He was brilliant. And frankly, it's just fun to see a guy who who is so clear in how he understands reality and so clear in his ability to debunk false teaching that it just rolls off of his tongue without any thought. These people weren't coming to learn anything from Jesus. They didn't come to gain clarity on a difficult issue. They weren't sitting at his feet. They weren't doing the one thing necessary. They came for one purpose, to discredit Jesus before the people. And so they asked him, is it lawful? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, if the tables had been turned and Jesus was the one asking the Pharisees these questions, if they were honest, they would have to say, yes, it is lawful. That's the way they lived. Yes, it is lawful. And our teachers even teach that it is lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all. Now, the thing we need to understand here is when they say, is it lawful, this is what they're asking. Jesus, is it biblical? They weren't talking about civil law here. They were talking about the Old Testament. That's all they had. They were talking about the law portion of of the Old Testament. You have the law and the prophets and the Psalms. Um, The law, especially um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which made up the Pentateuch, the Torah. Those were the most significant books. And those were the books of the law. In fact, when you read in Joshua, when uh, uh, the Lord says, uh, "'This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate day day and night.'" He's speaking primarily of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so when they were saying, when they came to Jesus and said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? They were asking Jesus, is it biblical? Interpret the scriptures for us. Give us your interpretive understanding of the law on this practical issue they would have to say yes it is biblical for a man to divorce his wife or anything they would say God doesn't demand that we hold any particular standard in marriage whatever meets my need whatever makes me happy that's God's concern and I've heard women say this God wants me to be happy to which you would respond what is there a verse you're thinking about Is your happiness greater than your holiness? Is your happiness greater than uh, obedience to God's word? Or say it the way we said it last week, do you want happiness so badly that you're willing to sin to get it? Then your desire for happiness has become a lust. It is your functional God. You love it, you worship it, and it rules you. So, um, today you can go into any bookstore in America and find books that support this view of the Pharisees, like a book by two authors, John Adam and Adam, which is ironic, right? Uh, John Adam and Nancy Williamson wrote a book called Divorce, How and When to Let Go. And in it, they're kind of giving a psychological approach to understanding when it's time to get a divorce. Divorce. And so they write these words. You know, I tremble even to read this, but here we go. Your marriage can wear out. People change their values and lifestyles. Now, understanding they are attacking the idea of covenant in marriage, but they're doing it in a way that appeals to the flesh your marriage can wear out. People change in values and lifestyles. People want to experience new things. Change is a part of life. Change in personal growth are traits for you to be proud of, indicative of a vital, searching mind. You may accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it is especially easy. For two persons to grow apart, letting go of your marriage, if it is no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing you have ever done. Getting a divorce can be positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented. It can be a personal triumph. You know, you just hear the hiss behind this, right? Has God really said? And you shall not surely die. It's the same thing. It's an attack on God's word. God didn't really say that. God's a liar. Nothing's new. What happened in the garden happens today. And so the Pharisees, like many in our day, believed that God allowed people to divorce for almost any reason at all. They had a very low view of marriage, but not Jesus you're taking notes, point two, here we go. Jesus' holy regard for marriage. Here is Jesus' holy regard for marriage. Now, regardless of how hard the Pharisees tried to plan a perfect assault on Jesus' life and teaching, they were never a match for Jesus. Responding to their fleshly questions was child's play for him. So notice how he responds, verses four through six. And he answered and said, Have you not read? That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Whatever God has joined together, let no man separate. Now that's an amazing statement. And I'll tell you why. Here's the Pharisees in Jesus' day speaking to Jesus And they're saying, Jesus, is it biblical for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Now, what they're going to do, and Jesus knows this, being God and all, he knows that they're going to appeal to Moses. And so you know what Jesus does? He appeals to Genesis. They're going to appeal to Deuteronomy. And he's going to say, you haven't read back far enough. In fact, there's a a tone of sarcasm here. And we've talked about this before, but let me bring it to your attention again. Who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees and the scribes, they were the rulers of uh, Israel in the sense that they were the religious elite who spent all their time both studying the word of God and policing the nation about violations against the word of God. And they had all their own Um, traditional teaching, the tradition of the elders that were written in addition to the law of God so that, you know, it was kind of the idea if this is where the law is, we don't want to break the law, so we're going to write a law that's previous to God's law to keep us from ever getting close enough to break God's law. But in doing so, they made God's law, which is unattainable, and they made it something that man can attain. And then breaking those laws was no big deal. And they felt like keeping those laws and not breaking them too bad was a way to become righteous in the eyes of God. And so they were masters of the law. That's why they're asking, is it lawful? Is it biblical? And I say this is kind of a holy sarcasm because Jesus then says, have you not read you theologians, you scholars of the bible have you read the bible? have you read the bible? i mean let's not not even all of it. i mean okay, forget leviticus, you always skip it in your quiet times anyway. let's <laughs> let me just ask you. have you have read you read genesis? i mean not even all of genesis. i know there's there's like 50 chapters and all did you read the first chapter or two? Because there is where God lays out the standard. You want to know what my hermeneutic is, Jesus is saying? You don't interpret Moses by Moses, you int- by, by uh, that little section in Deuteronomy. You have to interpret that little section in Deuteronomy by the initial statements that God made through Moses in Genesis. You have to start from the beginning. You're jumping right into the middle of the story. And you're trying to come up with an interpretation. That's not how to do it. That's a bad hermeneutic. You got to start with chapter one. Don't jump into the middle of the book. And so that's what he does. Have you not read? This is holy sarcasm. I don't know about you, but I struggle with sarcasm. Uh, Sometimes I can be a pretty sarcastic guy. And I'm working on that. I'm trying not to be as sarcastic. And you know, when I see, you know, passages like this don't help me. (laughs) Jesus did it, you know. (laughs) The Apostle Paul did it. Oh boy, I know there's a difference. Have you not read? In other words, the answer to your question is no mystery. It's not difficult to discern or hard to figure out. You're asking kind of a Sunday school question. If you had read the scriptures with any kind of heart to know and to joyfully obey the will of God... This would be no mystery. This would be no complication. You wouldn't be testing me with this verse because you would know that it's clear. In fact, the answer to your question is so rudimentary and you can find it in the very first two chapters of the Bible. Have you not read? Well, what should they have read? Well, we're not going to go back to Genesis again. We did that a couple of weeks ago and you can get the recording of that. But here's what we looked at in brief. We find that God... Made Adam and Eve, created, created man in his own image, male and female. He created them, and he only created one of each. This is really pivotal to Jesus's argument here. He's appealing to the fact that God only made two. In fact, he made the second one out of the first one, so that there would be no, uh, there would be no lack of clarity on the issue that God intended for there to be only male and female. And he didn't give them any other choices. He didn't give them options. He didn't give them other females or other males. He didn't make a whole, you know, clan of males and females. He made two. One for the other. The other for the one. And by implication, on its face, the assumption is, listen, Adam and Eve... If you two quarrel, you fight, you have any problems, guess what? You're going to have to work that out because there isn't anybody else. That's what Jesus is appealing to. You say, really? Just think about this. After that whole deal with the apple, and then God comes and says, Adam, what have you done? And Adam says, the woman. How do you think Eve's feeling now? I mean, wait until the Lord steps away, buddy. (laughs) You're in serious trouble now. I mean, we haven't had any conflict in this marriage yet. But, oh, buddy, you know, wait until the drive home. This is going to be bad. What do you do? You throw up your hands and say, I want a divorce. Sorry, there isn't anybody else. He's the only guy in the whole world really and that seems so simple even funny but that is foundational to understanding Jesus's God the Father's view of marriage and what the Holy Spirit was teaching us through these things God created the male and female one woman for one man and for this reason a man shall be joined to his wife the word join meaning strong bond it was a glue it was like a glue. It was a strong bond that held them together. It was a covenant. And the two shall become one flesh. They're bound together in this strong bond so that the two become one. There's no re- reason to look for any other options. We are one. And not only that, but it was a very, the very work of God. It was the work of God. God did this. God did this. This was God's design. From the very beginning. And so the author says. This is again Moses in Genesis. What God has joined together. Let no man divorce. What God has joined together. You hear what he's saying to these Pharisees? You think you're making the choices here. The wife of your youth. Is the woman that God gave you. And the fact that you have this view that you can take off a wife and put on a new one anytime you feel like changing your t-shirt is a sin against God. So, in Jesus' mind, divorce was not a legitimate option for married couples. In the beginning, God intended for marriage to be one man, one woman, held together by a strong bond, permanently bound together in one flesh as a consequence of a precious and magnificent work of God. That's the way we should view marriage. That's a high view of marriage. Divorce was nowhere in God's mind. It it never entered his mind in terms of legitimacy. In fact, if they had read the Old Testament as they thought they had, not with eyes to be humbled and ears to understand so as to obey, but if they had that kind of attitude when they read the Scriptures, then surely they would have made it to the end And read the book of Malachi. And this is what they would have found. You ask, why has God abandoned us? Here's Malachi's answer. This is what Israel was asking. Why has God abandoned us? Here's the answer Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Now, listen to this next verse, next phrase. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. What's he saying? This is an indication. You have no relationship to the Holy Spirit. Which is just another way of saying, you're not mine. Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For, here's the term, I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, let me give you an assignment that I gave to the first service. I haven't studied it yet but I plan to this week, so email me what you find. How many times in the Bible does God say, I hate? I hate. Now, we teach our children, don't say hate. Don't say hate. Don't say hate. Now, all the children are going to go home and say, but God. (laughs) God hates everything that's unholy. But it's very seldom that we read in the Bible God saying, I hate. But here's one example. I hate divorce, especially among my people. And I think I understand why. And to understand it, you have to go back to Genesis. God created us in his image. For what purpose? So that we would live in such a way that shows the world what God is like God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit living through eternity without a single quarrel, without any disagreement. And they had different functions. God the Father is chief in authority and position. God the Son is next. God the Holy Spirit third. And so there is a ranking among them. Just like in marriage, there are different roles. And yet all three were God. And so it is. In the marriage relationship, they are both equal in essence, but they are different in person and in office. In fact, the Apostle Paul even appeals to this later on in 1 Corinthians, which we'll see when he's dealing with other dynamics in marriage. But here's the point. God created marriage to show the world what God is like. That's why Ephesians 5 says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so when the, Lord, when the world looks at your marriage, your friends, maybe Christian friends who are just looking at you and wondering, can I learn anything from them about how to be married and honor the Lord? Do they look at your marriage and go, Nope, (laughs) not there. Or do they look at you and say, wow, I wish I could spend more time with that couple. Women ought to be able to look at the wives and say, oh, I wish I could spend time with her to find out how to be a godly wife. Husbands ought to be able to look at the man of the house and say, oh, man, what a privilege it would be to spend time with him to learn what it means to be a godly husband. And thus show the world what God is like. That's what's at stake here. When we live in disharmony, when we divorce, we're giving people a false view of God. And when we are in open conflict so that others see it, we are showing the world perhaps that God doesn't really give the power for us to live with one another and that the gospel is no better than any other religion, and that God is not who he says he is. Well, that's too convicting. Let's move on. Number three, let's look at the Pharisees' loophole for divorce because this is where they're going. Have you not read, Jesus asked, but indeed had they read Malachi, they would have known. But the Pharisees, not knowing what to do at this point, perhaps maybe they planned this, they had this scripture they thought was their legal loophole. Now, in order to deal with this argument of the Pharisees, we need to go all the way back and look at this personally. And so I want you to turn with me in your Bible back to Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book of the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And we're going to look at verse um, chapter 24. Chapter 24, and the heading on that chapter, perhaps in your Bible, says something like the law of divorce, law of divorce. And I just want to read the first four verses here because this is the pertinent text. When a man takes a wife and marries her, now you're going to have to follow this closely and I'll kind of throw a word in uh, here and there just as an explanation, just to give clarity. When a man takes a wife and marries her, okay, this is the first marriage. And it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. Second marriage. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife. Then her former husband, first marriage, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. This was their legal loophole. This is the text that they used. They do what so many of Us do when we want to prove a point. They take a scripture and they give it a little twist. Just twist a word here or there. Um, Add a different suffix to the end to make it plural instead of singular. Add it, you know, I don't know. We can do all kinds of things with scripture to get it to say what we want it to say. And that's what they did with Deuteronomy 24 1 through 4. So let's understand that the Pharisees' rebuttal here, let's understand what it was. They were saying, since Moses commanded divorce, In Deuteronomy 24, how can you say that it's not biblical? How can you say it's unlawful? Moses commanded it. Now, in this text, Moses does command... uh, uh, The question is, does he command divorce? And the answer to that is, nowhere in this text does Moses command divorce. It was not a commandment at all. It's never a commandment in the Bible. Even if one party has committed adultery... There's no commandment to divorce. Here's what Moses is saying. I want you to notice the if-then clauses. Uh, There's really, there's three ifs and a then. So he's building a legal argument. If this is true, and this is true, and this is true, then this is what you do. Or in this case, this is what you don't do. So here it is. If a man writes his wife a certificate of divorce and sends her away because he has found some indecency in her... And if she goes out and marries another man, and if the second husband either divorces or dies, then her first husband is, listen, is not allowed to remarry her. That's the point of the text. The first husband, if he divorces his wife and she goes out and gets remarried, doesn't matter what happens after that. She's entered into a covenant with another man. She became one flesh with another man. She therefore is no longer biblically allowed to go back to the first husband. It cannot happen. Now, if you're reading in the King James, it's a little bit misleading. Um, it may be a little confusing because it reads differently. It reads like this: then let her let him write her a bill of divorce and give it to her hand and send her out of his house. That's not what the Hebrew is saying here. I think that's that's uh, a mistake in the translation. And you can do your own study on that. You can take my word for it. I'd recommend that you do study on that and find out for yourself. But we just don't have time this morning to prove that, and this is not a seminary class anyway. The the NAS gets it right, as does the ESV and some others. Uh, And we have... uh, 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 Let me just cut to the point here. The point is Moses did not command anyone to divorce, ever. There is a command in the text... And it reveals the point of the text. The command in verse 4, that if her former husband who sent her away is now not allowed to take her again to be his wife. That's the command. And the whole point is that marriage was not something that God would allow you to walk in and out of at will. If you're having trouble in your marriage, Moses was saying, you better think twice before you divorce her. Because you cannot have her back if she remarries. You're putting her in an impossible situation. Because she's going to have to remarry, probably, in order to stay afloat and be able to have food and not be an outcast. She's going to have such pressure on her to remarry that that's probably going to happen. Which Paul is going to explain, you're putting her in in such a position that you are almost forcing her to commit commit adultery because she's going she's to feel like she's got to find another husband. And if you remarry her after that marriage fails, then you're committing adultery with her or with anyone else that you may marry. And so that's the command. Moses was not opening the door for easy divorce. He was actually closing the unbiblical loophole that men like the Pharisees Think about marriage in terms of how they can do whatever they want in marriage and divorce their wife and get a new one like they were trading in an old pair of shoes. And this is perfectly consistent with Jesus' explanation. You see, Jesus had the same attitude that Moses did toward divorce and the same attitude that God had about divorce. I hate divorce. Next, I want us to see verses 8 and 9, Jesus' loathing of divorce. God says, I hate divorce. The Father says, I hate divorce. Here's what the Son says. The very essence of Jesus' attitude toward divorce. Jesus says, you've got it wrong. Moses did not command you to divorce. He only permitted it. Look at verses 8 and 9. It would be helpful if I turned my Bible to that passage. There we go. Verses 8 and 9. And he said to them, uh, let me just ask their question again. Verse 7. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And his answer is, because of your hardness of heart. Moses permitted, notice the difference in word, not commanded. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not. It has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. You see, in the beginning, it was one man with one woman, strong bond, enjoying a lifelong intimacy of one flesh in a relationship that was brought about by the very hand of God. That's what God intended for it to be. and God's original plan for marriage, there was no such thing as divorce. It wasn't an option. And someone might say, well, wasn't there any way to be loosed from a marriage union biblically? And the answer to that question is yes, there are actually two ways. Now, we're only talking about the Old Testament. Some of you are saying, but, 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 Paul. Okay, we'll get to Paul. Paul says some more things. You're going to have to come back next week and the week after that. Um, we're just dealing with Jesus here, Old Testament. Jesus wasn't. He hadn't died, he hadn't been raised again. We know that because he's speaking here. That's a first clue, good hermeneutic. If Jesus is talking, he hasn't died yet. Um, and so here we go. Someone might say, wasn't there any way to get out of the marriage biblically in a way that would be honoring to the Lord? Yes, there were two ways. If the spouse were to die, then the marriage would be over, right? And uh, that's, that's just obvious, but it's also stated very clearly in places like Romans 12 and other texts of Scripture, If a person dies, that's why in the marriage vows we say, uh, as long as we both shall live, or until death do us part, is the old way of saying it. And so if one person dies, the other person's free to remarry, no problem. Um, And we'll look at other places where some Pharisees come to Jesus and ask him, remember about the wife who married seven brothers and whose wife will she be in heaven? There wasn't any problem with her remarrying because the men died, died. I think if I were the second or third guy, I'd be, you know, I don't know. I don't know, I just don't know. I got to pray about this some more. <laughs> so that's way, that's way number one, if, if your husband dies or if the wife dies, then the other spouse is free to remarry. Second, now this one's really important. If a spouse committed adultery, the Mosaic Law demanded that she be stoned to death. And if your wife gets stoned to death, then see rule number one, if she dies, right? <laughs> I mean, if your husband is stoned to death, then rule number one applies. So, so the way out was death, either by natural causes or by stoning, uh, execution. So the only way to be loose from a marriage covenant under the Old Testament law was death and either by either one of those causes, however, Somewhere along the way, um, and and we don't have a clear statement in in the Scriptures on this, although it seems here that Jesus accepted it, that somewhere along the way, um, it became acceptable in the eyes of God, here in the eyes of Jesus, that it would be pleasing to the Lord if instead of killing the one who has committed adultery, that you write her a certificate of divorce so that the guilty party would not have to die, and so that the innocent party would not be faced with having to put the girl or the man that she loves to death. Say, so can you demonstrate that from scripture? The only place I can go is Mary and Joseph. And maybe you know some other texts that would be enlightening, but think about Mary and Joseph. Mary turns up pregnant, Joseph, is, Joseph is, is saying, oh no, what has she done? I mean, does she not know, did she not think? I mean, she's going to be put to death. And it would have been righteous, it would have been the right thing. But the text says in Luke, but Joseph being a godly man and not wanting to shame her, put her to death, chose to divorce her quietly, as quietly as possible. There's no way I can marry this girl, the girl of my dreams, the girl that I love, but she has committed adultery. I mean, you just don't give me any stories about angels. You're pregnant. There's only one way that happens. And so he chose to divorce her publicly, or he chose to divorce her quietly. And by that time, that was acceptable. And so when Jesus is faced with the question, he says this. Why did Moses permit divorce? Because of your hardness of heart. Either you couldn't work it out, or you would arrange things in such a way that the adulterous person would most certainly have to die so you could be free. And so Moses, seeing not so much the sin of the other person, but your sin declared that it would be legal, biblical, for you to divorce the guilty party without stoning her. And so the grace of God would rule the day. And so Jesus recognizes that. Moses didn't command divorce. He merely regulated it so that it would only be permitted under certain circumstances. When it was necessary, it would be done in an orderly fashion. It had to be a writ of divorce. Those who sought to obtain divorce would be fully aware of the possible consequences of that. Nevertheless, it's clear that before Moses finished the Pentateuch, divorce was already in existence. And Jesus was responding to that. And so by the time Jesus came on the scene, the issue was not whether or not the divorce was allowable, but under what circumstances was it allowable. And Jesus' point here is that it's never allowable under Old Testament law unless a married partner commits uh, uh, hard-hearted, unrepentant adultery. Hard-hearted, unrepentant adultery. Now, why hard-hearted and unrepentant, since he didn't say that? Because we know from other teachings of Jesus that if a person asks for forgiveness, a child of God grants it. If there is repentance, then a child of God grants forgiveness. And you know what? I just got to tell you, uh, one one of the delights of being in one church for 16 years has been seeing marriages that have just hit the wall and bounced back. Hit the wall because... Either the husband or the wife committed adultery or did some terrible act. And yet the spouse chose for the glory of God to be forgiving. And to see those marriages transformed. Some of those people have left. Some of them are still here. To see those, trans, those marriages transformed so that they become people who you could model your own marriage after. and look at their life and say, I want my marriage to be like their marriage. He have no idea what kind of life they've had and what they've experienced. And the other person, the one, the aggrieved party, the one who didn't commit the sin, perhaps had every right to divorce, and they said, no, no, I'll forgive because God has forgiven me. By God's grace, we'll work this out. She's repentant or he's repentant. That's good enough. Let's go. Let's fix this thing for the glory of God and for our own joy. And that's a marvelous thing to see. But what's even better is if we never get there. So Jesus is saying to to them, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, once again, let's make some observations. The word here for immorality is porneia, which literally means fornication, which can only take place before a person is married, technically, but it became a word that was used for any kind of sexual sin, whether it's uh, fornication or adultery or homosexuality or whatever the sexual sin is. If your partner is engaging in sexual sin and they are unrepentant, then yes, divorce can be applied for. And so Jesus is saying that divorce is only permitted when one of the partners violates the marriage in a sexual way. In fact, Jesus says, if you choose to divorce your wife for any other reason than that and go out and marry someone else, you've committed adultery yourself. You've committed adultery. And in Mark's account, Jesus says the same thing goes for the woman who divorces her husband and marries another. She too commits adultery. And then in Matthew chapter five, Jesus ramps it up even further and says, everyone who divorces his wife, except for reasons of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so there you have it. So you better be careful about the reason for which you seek divorce. Otherwise, you will be proliferating adultery all over the place. You're going to be offending God all over the place. You're going to be putting other people in positions where they be all they can do To keep themselves from complicating the original sin with more sin because they'll want to be married. And so you better be careful. This is the message. And so all of this is simply to say that God did not permit divorce. God did permit divorce, but only in the case of adultery, and even then it wasn't required. And this is such an important point. Even then, it's not required. Whenever there is genuine repentance, there should be genuine forgiveness. And even when repentance is not fast coming, the aggrieved spouse should be patient and prayerful and seeking reconciliation, whatever the cost. After all, that's the way God treated us. And that's the way God treated Israel when she was at her worst. Say, "What, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the prophet Hosea. Prophet Hosea is a, it's a hard book to read, um, not only because of the subject matter, but just because of the language, it's difficult to read. Ed Wheat has a book called Love Life, and in the, somewhere in the middle of that book, he's, he's got a retelling of the book of, the message of the book of Hosea, and it goes something like this. God comes to the prophet and says, Mary, get married. In fact, marry this one. Mary Gomer. So he marries Gomer. And it didn't take long to find out that Gomer is not as committed to the marriage as he was. And she starts fooling around on the side and getting involved with men who were not her husband. And Hosea knew it. But he kept loving her and kept pursuing her. She started to have children. And he named them, Lo-Ami, lo Ruhama. He's not mine, and she's not mine. And there were others. I'm married to this woman. She's having children. None of them are mine. And he loves her. And then she meets this guy and runs away with him, leaves her with the kids, leaves him with the kids. And what does he do? He tracks down that guy. He tracks him down. Not for reasons that you and I would track him down. But he goes and he watches from a distance. And when he has opportunity, he runs up upon the man and he says, Here, his grain, his wine, his clothing. Take care of my wife. Amazing. And she's such a wretch that when she discovers all of this stuff, This windfall that has come upon herself and this new lover. Suddenly she thinks, Oh, the gods have blessed me. They want me to serve him at the temple. And so she becomes a temple prostitute. And the temple uses her in ways that are unimaginable. And when they're done with her, there's nothing left to do but sell her off as a common slave. And guess who shows up at the auction? Hosea. And nobody's bidding on this girl. And he opens his wallet and lays out the cash and says, that's my wife. And I love her. And I will never break my covenant with her. And he buys her, he purchases her, he ransoms her. Sound like gospel language? He ransoms her for himself and takes her home and bathes her and feeds her and dresses her in the clothing of an honored wife and says to her, now you will be mine. You will be my wife. And I will be your husband forever. Beloved, that's the picture of marriage. You want to show the world what God is like? Love your wife like that. Want to show the world what God is like? Love your husband with that kind of love. You say, well, he makes me mad. No, he doesn't. Whatever it is he did is only the occasion of your anger. It's not the cause. If you're angry... That anger is coming from you. It's certainly not coming from the Holy Spirit. You say, well, it's righteous anger. I doubt it. (laughs) Is it for the glory of God? For the good of the other person? Is it accompanied by the fruit of the Spirit? It's not holy anger. You're disappointed. You want what you want. And you're responding in a sinful manner. Just own it. Confess it. Repent of it. Love your spouse biblically. Deal with sin biblically. And show the world what God is like. Regardless of how popular opinion may swing and sway, one truth remains the same, beloved. God hates divorce. Now, having said that, there's more. That's not the end of the story. There's more to learn. You have questions, no doubt. The Corinthians had questions, and so they wrote Paul a letter. And Paul answers those questions. And those questions are very practical, very pertinent, and very necessary for us to understand. Let me say also that I know this room has quite a few divorced people in it. I understand that. God loves you. You've been divorced. You've been remarried. God loves you. Right where you are, and you are His precious possession, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But what I'm saying is if you're married, as married, if you've been married once or twice, whatever, whoever you're married to right now, that's your husband or your wife, until both of you, one of you perishes. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it's so good for us to hear these things. Especially that part at the end about (coughs) how much you love us. We can get so upset at our wives, our husbands. And we take on a sense of an air of self-righteousness. But you who are truly righteous set out an eternal plan, not for condemnation, but to bring us to forgiveness. Father, help us to learn from you. And give us your spirit in full measure that we might be empowered and moved and motivated to love our wives, for wives to love their husbands as Christ loves the church and as the church respects and loves and honors Christ. Lord, we love you and we praise you for truths like this that humble us in the dust and then you use it to raise us up for our great, 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 magnificent joy. Thank you for the glory of marriage. Thank you for the glory of marriage that started with young love and has blossomed these 40 or 50 years without any unfaithfulness. God, praise you for the couples in our church who have done that by your grace. And I praise you for those who have been divorced and are now remarried. Oh, Father, I praise you for marrying them and bringing them together pray, Father, that they would live their lives in such a way now that brings great glory to you and joy to one another. All of it, Father, for your glory, for we pray it in Jesus' name.